What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica, and I'm joined today by Brenda, Amira, and Shireen. On this week's show, since this is dropping the week of the U.S. presidential and other elections, and as COVID cases are growing in numbers in too many places, we wanted to focus on some joy. So we're going to tell some sports stories today and hope they bring a smile to your face. Once upon a time in April of 2014, Pele and I made each other cry. Then we'll burn things that deserve to be burned, highlight the torchbearers who are giving us hope during this dark time, let you know what's good in our world, and tell you what we're watching this week in sports. On Thursday, our interview will be with Dr. Courtney Sito about her new book, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians. But before all of that, we have to get to something important. Tuesday, November 3rd, is National Sandwich Day. So let's hear it. What's your favorite sandwich? No, a hot dog does not count. Do not bring that mess into our world. Shireen, you struggled with this answer. Tell me what you've come up with. Such a hard question. Best sandwich experience, I want to be specific, was a crispy baguette stuffed with chicken salad that came with a pastry and can of Perrier when we were in Paris last year, Jessica, at the local boulangerie. But my fave sandwich in the whole world is a smoked meat on rye from Schwartz's Deli in Montreal. Can't beat it. Grainy mustard, 100%. I love that you just created your own category for that answer. Okay, Amira. (laughs) Yeah, um, either a pavo or panel queso sandwich from really any panderia in Puerto Rico or here, but not anywhere near me, sadly. My favorite place on the island is um, España, which is in Isla Verde, and it's like literally my favorite sandwiches. In the entire world, all of them are pressed and hot. And, you know, they're, like, pressed like Cubans, but not necessarily Cubans. Like, I obviously get, like, turkey in them. Anyways, all this did, though, was, like, it's supposed to be joyous, but I live in a food desert. And it really made me want, like, mofongo or a sandwich or, like, Puerto Rican food. And I had to look it up. And the closest place is an hour and 24 minutes away in some place named Sellings Grove. So I will be taking a road trip in the near future. Thanks. You're welcome. This Your answer did make me think about an amazing Martinique sandwich I had in Paris last summer that mm. I do think about from time to time. It was pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Brenda? <laughs> okay. Mine is so boring in comparison, <laughs> but fake bacon sandwich, mozzarella, avocado, lettuce, tomato, a little bit of salt. That's it. It's my turn to be a basic bitch this week. <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> I say lean right into that, man. <laughs> Mine, there's a local shop here called Gourmands that is Aaron's favorite place. So we actually eat there a fair amount. And they have this amazing sandwich called The Last Supper. And it is mainly roast beef and queso. And that's just a really lovely combo. (laughs) Okay, let's tell each other some happy stories this week. I think we're going to go in chronological order. So Amira, you are up first. Okay, (laughs) I'm really excited about this because I get to talk about one of my favorite random facts ever. So I want to talk about McDonald's and the 1984 Olympics. It's a situation I find specifically very hilarious. It brings me great joy thinking about it. I only can hope that it will do the same for you. So with the 1984 Olympics coming to Los Angeles, McDonald's joined in with the rise of corporate sponsors and came up with a fun marketing plan. Now you can compete in the Olympics too. 
Play McDonald's. When the U.S. wins, you win Olympic games and win up to $10,000 instantly. Or keep your cards, and when the U.S. wins your event, you win a Big Mac, regular fries, or a Coca-Cola. So go to McDonald's and get your game cards today, because when the U.S. wins, you win. That's right. The plan was a scratch-up ticket that came with every order. And each scratch-up ticket had an event on it. And the medals corresponded with that. So if <laughs> if the U.S. won gold, you got a free Big Mac. Silver was French fries. Bronze was a Coca-Cola. So you see, exciting. When the U.S. wins, you win. Now here's where things went very, very wrong. Or very, very right, depending on, you know, if you were McDonald's or everybody else. Basically, they, McDonald's based their predictions on the 1976 Olympics, where the U.S. had come in third in medal count behind the Soviet Union and the East Germans. Yet many of you will see where this is going at this point. After 1980, when the U.S. boycotted the Olympics, the communist countries, they didn't show up to L.A. So the U.S. medal count shot all the way up. In 76, they had 94 medals, like roughly like 34 golds, right? 94 in total. In 1984, they took home 83 gold medals, 61 silver medals, and 30 bronze medals, a total medal count of 174 medals, leading to a complete and utter McDonald's meltdown. Headlines bemoaned the lack of food to fulfill all of the scratch-off tickets that won. Where is the Big Mac? It was a complete Big Mac shortage. Fries were sold out. The tales of folks who were like, I love the LA Olympics because I'm literally surviving off of McDonald's for a month. (laughs) Everybody, it became a running joke. And you might recall this joke even eventually making it to The Simpsons, where they parodied this when Krusty Krab offers a similar competition. Here's the end of the episode where Krusty Krab's owner has completely lost it because of his shortage. Welcome back to the final day of this, the 23rd Olympiad. Brought to you by Krusty Burger. You piddler pigs! <laughs> I personally am going to spit in every 50th burger. I like those odds. <laughs> <laughs> that was Homer Simpson taking the odds and why not? Every Everything was a winner. So while McDonald's has moved away from consumer deals like that, they remained a sponsor staple in the Olympic Village where athletes talked about how much they love McDonald's foods. But if you recall, at 2016, they had to limit the number of free Big Macs and McNuggets provided because the athletes were eating them out of house and home in the Olympic Village. So McDonald's told the athletes that they could only order up to 20 items for free each day, which gives you a little window of how much McDonald's was being consumed in the Olympic Village. In 2018, after 41-year partnership with the IOC, McDonald's actually has ended their corporate sponsorship of the Olympic Games. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what they cook up next. Oh, this is working. That made me very happy. Brenda, you remember this? Oh, oh, I do. I remember this and I had many a free thing. I eventually would go on. I love McDonald's so much. I would eventually go on six years later to get an early work permit on my 15th birthday and begin to work at McDonald's where I got free food and within six months was a vegetarian. <laughs> this, but this McDonald's game was like a highly, like 1984 was just such a year for me. I was nine. Uh, the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. There was the Olympics. And that McDonald's game, like, I, I don't know, but my lifespan is probably shortened because of it. I, I remember that, even though I wasn't eligible for any of it because we were inundated with American advertising. So I got all of this. And then you had all the Canadians that were so jealous as everything you guys kept winning because we never got any of that. I just love how you guys are like, I remember this. (laughs) I wasn't bored for another four years. (laughs) Only you think that's funny. Only you think that's funny. I'm going to focus on the story. (laughs) Okay, well, I also have an Olympic story. Mine's personal. So my mom, Mary, and her wife, Sue, they used to live in Atlanta. And so they lived in Atlanta in 1996. And for anyone from Atlanta, they lived in Candler Park. They were near Little Five Points, right by the old, I think, Karis Bookstore has now moved, but it used to be right there. They were right in it. And so we went to the Olympics in 1996. And it was so much fun. We saw volleyball we saw some gymnastics we went and saw track and field in the stadium and then we saw some basketball 
And so it's funny because I was 15, 16. I was a teenager. And I only remember so much about it, which is kind of strange. I was pretty old for this moment. But I do remember specifically there were huge crowds, just the overwhelming feeling of the place. But I really, I remember the basketball. And this was really exciting. 1996, U.S. women's team, they had won bronze in 92. And so for the first time, the U.S. So the U.S. decided they needed to be better. And for the first time, the team was composed of the best post-collegiate basketball players, selected more than a year before the games. They played 52 international games leading into the Olympics. They won all 52. So the hype was huge. And the players are people that you know so well. They're legends, right? Cheryl Swoops, Don Staley, Rebecca Lobo, and my favorite, Miss Lisa Leslie. I was a teenager. I was so tall. I was probably inching towards my six feet. I six feet tall now. I might have been six feet then. I had too much limb. I was so I was like arm and leg. And I wrote about this once. And what I said about it was that I was in that awkward body that I didn't yet know how to wear. But then I got to go to the Olympics and I saw these women play and they looked like me and I looked like them. And it's like I don't even know how to describe in words how affirming that was for me. I got to go and see this. And I talked to my mom, Mary, and her wife, Sue, yesterday. And here's their memory of this bit of it, starting with Sue. Part of the most fun was that we were able to bring you, J.R., Jessica Ray, because <laughs> just to see the joy on your face and also to see all the people looking at you because you were so tall and they thought maybe you're an Olympic player. <laughs> Yeah, because you were you were 16 years old and you were already really really tall. So we went to some early round action and it like it didn't even matter to me that we were sitting in like the nosebleed. The basketball was played in the Georgia Dome. I think we set up really really high. I think in one of those pictures that I sent to you yesterday, I think that was the women's basketball game and you can see how far up we were. <laughs> I love their voices so much. Uh this was a huge watershed moment in women's basketball as well. The American Basketball League, the ABL, and the WNBA started out of the popularity of this gold-winning USA women's basketball team and their success. And I just, it holds such an important place in my heart. Um, but to maximize the feeling of happiness, and I hope this is true for everyone else because this is my mom, uh, I want to end this with my mom talking about what it was like for her to experience the Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta, where she lived. Uh, I think the the thing that I was so amazed about at the Olympics that we were actually at an Olympics. You know, that's where I, I couldn't hardly fathom it because I never thought I'd go to an Olympics. And then when we found out it was going to Atlanta, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe we're going to get to go to an Olympics. And then all the people and just all the excitement. And it was just like, oh, just the adrenaline flowed. I, I, I loved it. It was, I loved everything about it. I love how she says loved. Oh, it's so, <laughs> it's so adorable. So yeah, that is my story that I think of to make myself happy. Jessica Ray, that was lovely. Yep. Now everyone knows the secret is out. <laughs> My parents often call me JR. Oh. So I guess. I love that. I love that joyous. You know, my, my cousins are in Atlanta, and when I think of that, they were they were quite close to the bombing. And But now yeah. I have, like, a really positive image of the Atlanta Olympics to replace that, and that, that makes me very happy. Bren, you also have a personal story. I do. Once upon a time in April of 2014, Pele and I made each other cry. So I had been studying soccer for a long time already by then. My book was out. I had gotten tenure. I thought things were going to be good in my life. And the president of the university decided he wanted to have a major soccer conference. And I wasn't given a choice and I didn't want to do it. And in the same week, I found out that I was pregnant and it was a surprise and um, of course I'm happy now but at that time it did not um, fill me with unmitigated joy and <laughs> hope. I was conflicted and worried and then the soccer conference came up and there ended up being four days of it, 170 presenters, 
from many, many countries. It was very much on me. It was almost the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And I was super critical of it. I was critical of the money that it took to build it, the repression and the increased private security forces, changing of municipal laws, repression of Afro-Brazilian communities around Rio, Sao Paulo. And I was really conflicted and I was conflicted about Pelé. And so I was jaded. I was at this jaded moment, you know, where now I had to deal with this legend coming. And it's so funny to think about it. I wasn't excited at all. I had just a complete sense of dread, anxiety. I was so overworked. I just could hardly get it together. So the moment actually comes. And imagine, like, I've written about this person a lot. And so I am nursing my daughter. And I'm trying to tell people, like, Grant Wall, like, oh, down the hall to the left while I'm nursing this baby. Um, and 170 other people. And I don't know how many people attended. There was a clinic for girls, you know, the whole thing. And the whole time I've got this baby. And, and then, like, every time I have to do something, Julieta, I'm like, uh, can someone hold my baby? And, like, she didn't want to be with anybody. And then there's the other two kids. Luna had an allergic reaction to amoxicillin, had to go to the hospital in between. I'm just like, so, okay, so you get it. So it comes to the ceremony. And I had really worked on my speech. I had bad Portuguese, but I gave it a shot. Pelé surgiu em meados do século XX. And I thought I came up with something that was at least somewhat poignant. The way that Pelé and his generation played the game held a mirror, not up to the actual world perhaps, but the aspirations that many millions of fans held. The international conference we've had here has given us an opportunity to reflect on how football gives us insight about class inequality, social injustice, gender, courage, solidarity, the human condition, and Brazil, as all nations, has lived with deep divisions and contests over their soccer legacy. But it also gives us pause, I think. What would the world look like if more national identities were founded on creative brilliance, grace, and engagement with the world, win or lose? So I looked over and Pelé's tearing up, right? And then I get through the Portuguese part. E assim trouxe alegria para os corações De muitos. And, so and, and then English, he's full on tearing up. And okay, then the degree is awarded and we go backstage and he just gives me this big hug and I'm just like crying because it's over, like it's done. I don't have to do anymore. And I went on to write just recently a piece where I was super proud and, and because I got to kind of re-examine his legacy and I feel so lucky and it was so special how every time I write about him, I'm just sort of beaming all the time. Like, hey, thanks, buddy. Yeah, Brenda's beaming right now. You all can't see it, but I can <laughs> I can see on across the Zoom the beaming. That was beautiful, Bren. Not many people can say they both kick set bladder and nurse in front of them. Brenda Elsie, one of a kind. <laughs> and this for, for everybody else, I met Brenda in 2015 at a conference, but for the longest time, the entire standard of a soccer conference was this one. And I was really sad that I met you after, because the first question anybody asks in this world is, did you go to the conference at Hofstra? Is the first thing, because she set the bar so high globally while nursing a baby. So hats off. I just think it's like maybe with this election and these happy stories and stuff, like I love thinking about the unjading. Like how how do you lose a little bit of cynicism again? Because it's really necessary. All right, Shireen, bring us home. The soccer grannies of, from South Africa. When Jessica put this in the document, I knew exactly what I was going to talk about. Because when I think of football, and I think of global football, I think of grannies from South Africa. This is my happy story. This is what I want to be. 
I want to be a granny one day who does this. This is an absolutely beautiful story about women between the ages of 55 to 84 in South Africa in a specific region called Limpopo. And I heard about it by accident. And I heard about it about 10 years ago, 2010, this article, which we'll put in the show notes as well, I came across it. So basically, let me give you the background. This group was founded by community activist Rebecca Natasawasi, aka Mama Beka, from Limpopo. And she's a community organizer, she's an advocate, she's a philanthropist, and she campaigns for women in South Africa in order to bring attention to their plights for safety, security, economic independence. Now... Mama Beka was diagnosed with cancer in 2003, and one of the things that made her happy was football. So she started a group of women in her area to help them and to help them engage in a healthy, active lifestyle. Because the first thing we know, the first thing to go for women who carry so much on their shoulders all the time, work, family, mental health of everybody, they put themselves last. And sometimes the first thing to go is what people consider extra is self-care. And for her, for Mama Beka, football was self-care. So she got these grandmas started. Now, what I love about this is y'all are like, well, 55 to 84 is a huge, huge age range. Now, these some of these women did not have any knowledge beyond their normal consumption of football and cheering and supporting and fanning. So it was really flipping the script on what we think footballers can be and particularly in that region of South Africa what footballers look like because when you think of a footballer from South Africa you don't think of a black granny but guess what y'all you should so one of the greatest things about this is that Mama Becca's goal and her vision coming out of this was to start actually a world cup for the elderly or an African Granny's Cup. Now, I had been following the story, and the African Grannies actually traveled to the 2018 World Cup in Russia. And they got to be, uh, I mean, the word is mascot. That's how they refer to the people that walk the players on the field. So one of the qualifying matches, they actually did this. So I was like, okay, so this is good. I mean, unfortunately, some of the, the core team had passed away by 2018, but generally the squad was there. And we talked, I think there was 14 of them that went. What I didn't know, and if I knew this fact about 2019, the Women's World Cup in France, I would have made me and Jessica go. They actually traveled to France and played against a French women's team of elderly, Les Mamies du football, it's called. And I did not know this. Otherwise, I certainly would have gone from Reims and that car that we rented and gone somewhere else to watch these grandmas. So these mamies were playing and I tried to find out what happened in the match and I wasn't able to do so. If any of you have any information at all about the Vakugelas, the Vakugelas of South Africa and what happened, please let me know because I actually, I, I, I can't find any follow-up information. What I hope to see moving forward is this joy. I love the idea of breaking down ideas of what normalcy is. Like, what is normalcy even? If you seek joy, you get joy from football. You get joy from random things in sport that you are connected to. We can't help what we fall in love with. And I fell in love with this entire story. A documentary was created by this and it was shown in New York Doc Film Festival and it was beautifully received. I wanted to play soccer because it's helped me a lot. The painful is better. So the sounds of joy, the sounds of the women, and you know, they go to the side of the pitch and you see in the, in the clip that they're taking off their shirts and they're wearing colorful bras and they're putting on their kits and lacing up their boots. It's like riveting. So hats off to the grandmas, the soccer grannies of South Africa. So if you're out there, you're going to play in the park, take your grandma with you. Shereen, I have all the faith in the world that you will be a soccer playing granny one day. <laughs> I, there's no doubt in my mind about that, in fact. <laughs> on Thursday, hear Brenda's interview with Dr. Courtney Sito about Courtney's new book, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians. Make sure you're subscribed to Burn It All Down so you don't miss out on this great interview. How do you talk about quote-unquote Canada's game when it's built on settler colonialism? It's like inherently 
racist and the, the segregation that it was formed upon. It forces us to question a lot about what we think we know as a nation and what we are supposed to be as a people. And I think that that's why we don't talk about race and hockey in particular. It challenges um, the notion of Canadianness that we're supposed to be welcoming and multicultural. And once we start pulling at that thread, it comes apart pretty quickly. Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Cue Maracas. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs which are thrown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Okay, ready? Have I told you guys about my Uncle Quentin? Yeah, I know about him. You know about Uncle Quentin. My Uncle Quentin calls me so early on the weekends to help place his bets. And for, I don't know how to explain to him, like, Uncle Quinn, I, first of all, don't bet. Second of all, it is 7 a.m. my time, so you are getting up at <laughs> 6 in the morning for advice that I cannot really give you <laughs> because I don't bet on anything. Like, not even if you were like, hey, Mira, I bet you that it's going to rain today for a lollipop. Like, nope, I don't like that stress in my life. It's too stressful. <laughs> but now, you know, I just came back from Mississippi, so I got to see Uncle Quentin. And, of course, he was trying to ask me what to wager on this, that, and the other. And I was so happy that finally I could give him some actual good information because I was like, Uncle Quentin, I got something for you. Bet online is your place. It's absolutely your place to go. It has game threads and totals and players and teams and coaching props. You can literally wager on anything. They have more opportunities to wager than almost anything else. And they have all these sign-up bonuses. I was like, go over there. Please take advantage of all of this. Leave me the hell alone. And now, if you, like my Uncle Quentin, want to go to bet online and take any wagers of anything like that, please use the code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word, because they are your online sportsbook experts and not your favorite niece in the middle of Pennsylvania who cannot be bothered to help you with your wagers. So go to bet online, Uncle Quentin, and everybody else, your online sportsbook experts. That was really professional. Yeah, that was so good, Amira. We might need Vuvuzelas for mine, because that was really good. Indeed. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment that we like to call the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. I'm going to start, and I'm going to go with the low-hanging fruit that is the MLB and the LA Dodgers third baseman Justin Turner not taking COVID seriously. Last week, the Dodgers won their first World Series in 32 years when they defeated the Tampa Bay Rays in Game 6. Justin Turner, who is a key part of the team's success, was removed from the game between the 7th and 8th innings. Then Fox announced post-game on air that Turner was pulled because a test came back during the game saying he had COVID. But then... There he was on the field celebrating, not in isolation. No, he was hugging other players. He posed without a mask for a photo with the team sitting next to the team's manager, Dave Roberts, a cancer survivor. The MLB tried to put this on Turner, saying in a statement, quote, when MLB security raised the matter of being on the field with Turner, he emphatically refused to comply. 
Turner deserves a lot of scrutiny and judgment here. He knew he had an infectious, potentially fatal virus and chose to break protocol. But also, what's the point of MLB security? The reason Turner was pulled mid-game was because the tests that the players took between game five and six were delayed. But the MLB didn't postpone game six. Instead, they tested those samples and found out during the second inning of game six that Turner's test was inconclusive. They then rushed that day's test and found it positive, pulling him before the eighth. The MLB has a lot to answer for in the way that it handled the pandemic in general. And we shouldn't let our anger, no matter how justified it is at Turner, detract from the league's failings too. Sure, this was a major moment in Turner's life, and of course, he wanted to be out there celebrating. But lots of people have missed once-in-a-lifetime events, including being able to bury their parents or other family members who have died during this pandemic. Lots of people are sacrificing. Asking an athlete to sacrifice is not anything special. In fact, they shouldn't even have to be asked, and their team and their league should demand it of them anyway. So I just want to burn all of that bullshit. Burn. 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 Amira, what do you want to torch? Um, well, obviously, my lighthearted, really annoyed burn is still the Mookie Beck trade. Um, why? Anyways, uh, I really want to just tell Gar- Jeff Garcia to fuck off because he clearly has been sitting on this criticism of Cam Newton. You know, obviously Cam is not playing well. He also had COVID two fucking weeks ago. But anyways, after the latest game where he had a particularly poor showing, Jeff Garcia got on the damn television and started to go after not his play, but his clothes. He said, why are you dressing like that to bring more attention to yourself? I'd be asking the equipment managers, put me in your jocks art jocks. Actually, this is a good place. I'm gonna get the audio for this because you should really listen to Jeff Garcia talk about jock sock carts. You go into this game, two touchdowns, four interceptions. You throw, what, three more interceptions? You get yanked in the second half. There's nothing good going your way. Why are you dressing like that to bring more attention to yourself? I'd be trying to ask the equipment managers, put me in your jock sock cart and sneak me in the back door and I'll show up on the field and do the best that I can. Here's the thing. The fact that this is the first thing that came to Jeff Garcia's mind tells you that he's been ruminating on this for a long time. Forget about dog whistles. The racial overtones here are like very, very clear. You can't impose dress codes on players because they don't take the games too seriously and then get mad because their dapperness offends you. I literally could only think about the words of Still I Rise by Maya Angelou when she's like, does my haughtiness offend you? Don't take it awful hard, right? Like it's, this is what it is. It reminds me of the way people, you know, were offended by Jack Johnson. It wasn't that he was good. It was that he was good and flashy and he liked white women and furs and fast cars. They want black athletes to win with modesty, right? It's conditional acceptance. And they know they couldn't say shit to Kim about how he dresses when he's winning. And so as soon as he has a bad game, you get on the TV to talk about how what he's wearing and he's bringing attention to himself. He's wearing clothes. If you're paying attention to him, it's because he's flashy. If you're offended by it, it speaks more volumes about you and your insecurity and what you cannot deal with, which is just a dapper dude going to fucking work. So please stop because it's just annoying and unnecessary. And I don't even know why you have space to go after his outfit. Talk about his interceptions, not at all about his drip because, you know, it's, it's more like a flood, honestly, for how swaggy Cam is. But anyways... I just want to burn the unnecessary comments because it's dumb. Burn it down. Burn. Brenda, what is on your burn pile? On my burn pile is metaphorically the Miami-Dade Mayor Carlos Jimenez. And the reason is because basically they ruined and squashed the idea of putting a voting site in the American Airlines arena of the Miami Heat. This makes me really angry on many levels. I mean, the athletes' activism that prompted this and convinced the Heat organization to put this at the center of some of the demands of their Black Lives Matter protests was really inspiring and hard work. 
And I do want to cite here Douglas Hanks, the journalist who wrote about this for the Miami Herald, because it was a really like well laid out story and his journalism is really valuable. So basically the Heat said when they found out about this, quote, to say we are disappointed is an understatement, end of quote. So the Heat organization wasn't quiet about it, but basically what has resulted is that the deputy mayor and the mayor, who's running for Congress now, decided that the site was not apolitical because it had a Black Lives Matter banner on the outside of the stadium. So instead of doing that, they're holding it in a much smaller space where social distancing is impossible. That's what voters are saying. So I want to burn the false equivalencies, first of all, in Black Lives Matter being a political or partisan sign, which it is not. It is about civil rights that we all need to care about. And the equivalency that the mayor said is, well, what if we had a blue lives matter sign? So, you know, I want to burn that type of stupidity. We've been educated by Black Lives Matter for years. This is purposeful ignorance to call it that. And then to kind of see the players work, hard work, go down the drain by an action that actually is partisan, that actually is political. So I'm frustrated, I'm angry that people are now being exposed to COVID when they're just trying to vote because of these stupid dumb fucks. So I want to burn it. Burn. Burn. All right, Shireen, what are you burning? I'm going to uh, offer a trigger warning, content warning for violent abuse and racism and ableism. So this week, y'all must have heard in... Hockey news, it was a typically awful garbage pile of gross toxicity. The Arizona Coyotes had announced that their first draft pick would be Mitchell Miller, an 18-year-old freshman at the University of North Dakota. And for those of you that know, University of North Dakota is a hockey powerhouse, and most of their, a lot of their, rather, players go on and get drafted to the NHL. So the Arizona Republic... An independent paper released a story that when Miller was 14, and I really want you to remember this name, Isaiah Meyer Crothers, because that's who should be centered in this entire thing, was the young man, the child he abused. And at the time, Myers Crothers, a black disabled young man, had the mental understanding of a 10-year-old, according to his mother. Now, the Coyotes knew about this. They drafted him anyway. Meyer Crothers' mother, Joni, wrote a letter, which was also released in a piece by The Athletic later in the week, about how her letters to the Coyotes went unresponded. They didn't reply. They didn't reach out to her. They didn't talk to her. So Isaiah was nowhere centered in this story. Now, when the story was initially released, the Yotes really got defensive and said, you know, we stand by our choice. We are going to help this young man. We think everybody, you know, enter whatever about redemption arcs that are usually carefully curated and we see them a lot. But what ended up happening is they released him because of pressure not because they were committed to the cause, not because they felt any accountability for their fucking decisions. There's no leadership anywhere here. Like, where the hell is Gary Bettman? Is he in the minds of Moria? Like, where is this man? I haven't seen this man. Where is he? So the Coyotes released him. And two days ago, the University of North Dakota also let Miller go from their hockey program. So at this point, there are two kids, the central one needing assistance and support, which he and his family were denied, is Isaiah Myers Crothers. And now Mitchell Miller is left on his own when we've seen that he was given no guidance. He showed very little remorse as specified by the judge in this case because that particular case did go before youth courts. This whole thing is a fucking mess. It's a mess from start to finish. The child that should have been supported and centered was not. Nobody held space for him. And Mitchell Miller is now being tossed aside where before, because of their own interests, the Coyotes decided that they were going to be the saviors in the story and then pulled away and backed out when it was too difficult. And they this is a PR process. That's what this is. I'm furious at all of it. This just exposes the lack of leadership, foresight, and transparency within hockey. And I hate it. I hate all of it. I wrote a piece about this saying this exact same thing for The Guardian. And it was... I needed to parse out my thoughts because I've just been so upset about it. It's been a tough week about this. And because nobody seems to want to say 
there is a way in this discourse to be able to talk about the lack of centering of Isaiah Meyer Crothers and his family. And there is a way to talk about how hockey did let down and is going to let down Mitchell Miller again. And I don't even want to know what the plans are now. The NHL has been silent about this, as usual. I want to take that, this whole situation, misstep from every conceivable shitty thing to happen, happened in this story. I'm going to take this whole thing and toss it on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Now to highlight people carrying the torch and lighting the way. Amira, who are our defenders of the week? Yeah, that's going to go to Chine Agumake, Neka Agumake, the rest of the Agumake sisters, and all the black athletes with LeBron James More Than a Vote organization, which is doing the work to stop systemic racist voter suppression. The Agumake sisters will be in Houston working as poll workers all day on Tuesday. This is the same Harris County where Republican Texas Republicans have limited one mail-in ballot box for a county with 4.7 million people and then tried to toss out over a hundred thousand ballots that came through drive-in voting as Harris County is setting records for voter turnout and they're still trying to disenfranchise them. The Neka Gumake, Chine Gumake, Olivia Gumake, Erica Gumake, thank you for volunteering being poll workers. As Chine said, the last time she was at this arena at the Toyota Center, she remembered looking at Hardin fight for a victory, but now she said we are in the fight for our lives and I thank them for doing this work. Brenda, the goodbye and thank you of the week. Goodbye and thank you to Bibiana Steinhaus, the referee of women's soccer and the first woman referee in the Bundesliga who retired last month. Steinhaus refereed the 2011 Women's World Cup final where Japan beat the United States on penalties. The 2012 Olympic women's gold medal game in which the U.S. defeated Japan and Lyon's 2017 win against PSG in the Women's Champs League final. She was a model of intelligence, expertise, and grace under pressure. Shireen, I know you're particularly excited about this week's comeback of the week. I'm so excited. Hello, girls in green. Pakistan women's national soccer team has gathered for training camp this week after a seven-year hiatus. Seven years. They're back on the pitch where they belong. They're training. They're getting excited. They're glowing. They're distancing. They're wearing masks when they can. I'm just so happy to see it. I wish them all the best. Amira, tell us about the record breaker of the week. Yeah, Brazilian big wave surfer Maya Gabeira set a new world record in surfing earlier this year when she surfed a 73.5 foot wave in Portugal. You might have seen the video. where It's terrifying, first of all. Um, they recalculated it so they got the new height, which means that <laughs> was the largest wave surfed by anyone this year. And to have a woman having that title at the end of the year um, means a lot. She got the WSL's 2020 Women's XXL Biggest Wave Award, but also now holds the title of surfing the biggest wave of anybody in toe surfing of the year. Can I get a drum roll, please? The torchbearer this week is England's women's rugby, which won its record extending 16th Six Nations title last week and which recently announced that it would not be adopting the outright ban on trans women, despite World Rugby's recent ruling. That is a good one to punch from England Women's Rugby, and we thank them, and we are excited for them. Okay, what is good, y'all? I'm going to go first. I learned this week that Martin, our producer, does not know who Bette Midler is. He's now covering his eyes in shame. But what is good about this is that I have now listened to the song The Rose over and over and over again. And I just, that is such a good song. I love it so much. Some say love, it is a river. And I haven't even texted that one to Martin. Um, I've also just had a lot of candy thanks to Halloween. And that has been really great. Amira. My grandfather passed away um, last week, um, and but I was really happy that I was safely able to make it um, first to Houston and then to Natchez, Mississippi for his burial. 
Um, and, you know, it was a beautiful country ass home going. Um, but it was really nice to be able to socially distant. Like we drove by my mom's family in Natchez. So we got to drive by and see my grandmother and wave at her. Um, my great uncle Huck, we got to drive by and wave at. Um, we got to play socially distant spades and dominoes. Uh, I'm now on 50 million cousin group chats that have been revived in the wake of this. Um, and then, of course, it was really nice to go um, get to see my sister's dance team on Friday night pandemic lights. Like nobody could come to the Friday night football games, but her dancers are still dancing. Um, and it was, it's just good to be home, even if it was a whirlwind trip um, for a, a fairly sad occasion. But it was still, you know, family is everything. So and then when I was there, my brother got me hooked on a new anime show, which is good because where my level of self-care needs are like I literally can't watch like real human people like it makes me too stressed out and so instead of watching Avatar for the you know millionth time I'm now watching Hunter x Hunter and having a lot of fun with that and then I installed Sims 4 I reinstalled it on my work computer I reinstalled <laughs> Sims 4 and now I'm just playing the Sims and watching Hunter x Hunter and like writing, I guess, occasionally. That's a disclaimer for anybody who's listening to the podcast who I owed work to, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Brenda. Well, I love Halloween, even though it was dampened this year. I love seeing everyone's pictures on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all their kids and all of them being goofy and cute. And, you know, I love Halloween, even though I'm not really a candy person. I loved watching baseball. I didn't have a dog in that fight. And I loved the Mexi flex of the pitchers on the Dodgers. I loved them being interviewed in Spanish. I found it just them delightful how, you know, Gonzalez almost retired and then they convinced him not to. And it's a whole kind of cutesy story that I just like eat up. I voted, which was amazing. And um, there was free pizza. And someone had sent just dozens of pizzas. And so I made the kids wait for an hour and a half. They were super crabby, super pissed off. And then I was like, hey, pizza. And they were like, yes. And I'm pretty sure it was Paul Rudd um, who lives in Rhinebeck. It might have been Uma Thurman. It might have been Julian Casablanca. I have all these theories. Yeah, they all live in that area. Jessica Luther right now looks very confused by this. Are you okay, Jessica? <laughs> so we, so that we all get to gossip about which person had sent us the pizzas, and it was hilarious. I also really love this episode. Well, I would... I mean, I feel like you should introduce us to Paul Rudd is what I was thinking. You can come to his candy uh, shop. He's there all the time. Yes. Yeah. In Ryan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I will do that. That is a thing I will I will do on the other side of this. Okay. Uh, Shereen, what's been good with you this week? Um, the week was a little stressful. I mean, school's going really well. I'm quite happy. Me and my partner, Nico, in our aesthetics and comms class got a 90 in our presentation on Horkheimer. So I was very excited about that. I was on that. Um, fateful call when Martin disclosed he had not known of Bette Midler. And I want to preface this by saying Martin has also never watched Bend It Like Beckham. And I actually feel like this is a problem. And I love you, Martin, but I'm here for an intervention. I've offered multiple times to FedEx him a movie, a DVD, because I own several in case of emergency, like this one. So this is what I'm going to focus my attention on now and watch the film again. I want to shout out my cohort at Ryerson University, RTA, Masters of Media Production, because I love this class. We have threads in Discord about baby photos, pets, and any possible conceivable thing to distract us from all the work we have due. I really am very grateful because I think I have the best cohort ever. Um, I am grinding Cobra Kai with my kids, and we love it so much like the amount that we love this Netflix series is weird but normal and I'm just very grateful for it I'm spending a lot of time with my kids and they're great um just to circle back a little bit to the cohort really quickly a lot of us have never met in person because my program is exclusively online but what we decided was that we were going to have a prom when this is over and we graduate where even if we just have to get a restaurant ourselves because there's only 24 of us in the program so in some places we can still fit inside um so i 
bought a prom dress for a prom that's not yet happening for a program I haven't even graduated from, but I bought a prom dress. Um, and shout out to David Rudin, my dear, dear friend in Montreal, who encourages me and enables me to always buy gowns that I may not ever need, but you need a gown. So this is my sixth gown and I'm very excited. It's like a silver gray with an overlay of lace, like a built-in cape. It's stunning and I love it. And of course I bought a gown in a pandemic. It was a better purchase than the air fryer. So anyways, I have a gown and I'm excited and absolutely thinking about an idea that Martin just had about watching Ben like Beckham via Zoom, which is a must, Martin. So that's what's good. And before we get out of here, we want to tell you what we're watching this week in sports. It's slowing down on this side of the pond, except for football, which you can catch whenever COVID isn't postponing the games. <laughs> there is some college volleyball that ha- it has returned. Keep an eye out for that. This includes a big matchup between Baylor and Texas on Thursday, November 5th, and Friday, November 6th. You can catch them twice this week at 7 p.m. Central Time. And there is, of course, soccer being played around the world. The usual men's league's fixtures include the Premier League, Bundesliga, Serie A. Is that right? Serie A. It's just Serie A. <laughs> I know, but that's what I said before, and then Brenda corrected me. Brenda, it's Serie A. Are you talking about the Italian league? Yeah, it's, it's Serie, Serie A. a. Serie A. Yeah, you did it perfect. Bundesliga, okay. Serie A, La Liga, Ligue 1, Scottish League, and of course the UEFA Men's Champs League. Women's FA Cup, plus the Women's FA Championship. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of all of us here, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by Martin Kessler, the wind beneath our wings. Shelby Weldon does our website, episode transcripts, and social media. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn, all of the places... Burn It All Down is also now a part of the Blue Wire Network. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. From there, you can email us directly or go shopping at our Teespring store. It's the perfect time to pick up a hoodie or a blanket, use the code FALLFLAMES, one word, and receive 15% off your order. If you're a patron, make sure to check your email or the Patreon page for an extra special discount code. As always, an evergreen thank you to our patrons for your support. It means the world. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. Ready? Said yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pronunciation no, thing, my friend. This is Italian. Yeah. <laughs> This is Italian. No, I, I understand the linguistic aspect. It also depends. I have a friend from Milan. He doesn't say Seria. He doesn't what, say that. What that does sounds he ridiculous. say? It sounds Italian. He says Seria. He says Seria. <laughs> I love you, Shireen.